We're looking at Philippians chapter 3 this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. It's also in the bulletin with a place to take notes. Philippians chapter 3, we're going to be looking at the first 11 verses. Give ear now, this is God's word. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is God's word. We're starting a new series this week. Uh, We're going to be looking at when will I be happy with God. As we've gone through Philippians, we've seen already, Paul has shown us how to be happy with our lives the circumstances of our lives, we've seen how to be happy with others. And now, for the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at the answer to this question, when will I be happy with God? And we can ask this in in, in several different ways. When can I be happy knowing for sure that I have God's love? Right? When can I know that I have assurance that He's on my side? These are questions that we ask ourselves all the time. And the answer that so many of us think to give to this question is, well, it's when I've done enough. Right? When I've done enough. And just thinking about this, this idea of when I've done enough, personally, it makes me feel tired. <laughs> it also makes me feel a little bit depressed. Um, there are so many people who even avoid church because of this very answer that so often they hear. When it's about works, it's like we, we, people want to avoid church because life is demanding enough right? Work is demanding enough. Relationships take time, energy, and effort. And the last thing that we need is to add to the already lengthy laundry list a religious list now to try to get into God's good graces, right? The last thing that most people want is this idea of, oh my gosh, you have to, I have to add something else now to my life before I'll be happy with God, before I can do enough to make God happy with me, with me, And that's really what happens to us. When we start answering the question, I'll be happy with God when I've done enough, what we're actually doing in our minds is we're changing the question. 
right? Not when will I be happy with God, but when will God be happy with me? And so that's what we're going to look at today. Paul tells us that the key to answering this question the right way is in your approach. Okay, it's all in how you approach God. So we're going to look at that in three points this morning. First, we're going to see assessing your approach. Second, changing your approach. And then third, the happiness of the right approach. Okay, so first, assessing your approach. This is verses 1 through 8. You know, Paul starts by saying that we need to assess our approach because there are many who are going to push you into a wrong approach. Okay, there are people who will try to get you to think about approaching God in the wrong way. And what Paul is confronting in our passage is the approach that says it's our performance that earns God's favor, that earns God's favor. It's our, our performance is what we do. You know, and if you ask most people today, you know, when will I be happy with God? Most people will answer in one form or another, well, are you a good person? Right? And if you are a good person, then you can, you, you can be satisfied. God, will, God, is, God is pleased with you. And the problem is, when you start to ask them, well, what exactly does it mean to be good? That's what puts you on that treadmill, right? Because, well, all right, you have to be good in this area and that area. Well, what if you fail? Well, you know what? As long as your good outweighs the bad, then you should be in good shape. And it's like, well, who gets to judge that then? And all of a sudden, you're in a pit, right? You're in a pit. You're on a treadmill. You're in that rat race. And religions don't help the process. Because if you look at religions in the world, they affirm pretty much the same approach. The difference with religions is that in addition to the morality that's required that everybody says, they add some sort of religious rituals that you need to follow in order to make sure that you are in relationship to the right God. Right? And so you have to perform this other set of religious duties in order to be happy with God. And this is who Paul is confronting in this text. The religious folks of his day who basically said that in order to be happy with God, you had to keep all the laws of the Old Testament. Okay, that's who Paul's confronting when he talks about, verse, uh, when he talks about them in verse 2. And he warns the church against these people. And he's not kind. Okay, this isn't... Uh, <laughs> yeah, these aren't kind words that Paul is using here. Look at verse 2. He calls them three names. He says they're dogs... He says they're evildoers, and he says they are those who mutilate the flesh. He says, look out for them because they're around. Watch out for them because they are coming, and they will try to force you into their way of thinking about how to be happy with God. Now, what's powerful about this, this description, these three insults that Paul gives them, is that these three insults were actually insults that the Jews of Paul's day used against the non-Jews. Okay, for hundreds of years, the Jews have been calling the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people in the world, they've been calling them dogs. Jesus even does it, actually, in the Gospels. This woman comes and he calls her a dog. Got to figure that one out. But Paul does it too. Um, the idea of evildoers in the Old Testament, if you read, especially in the Psalms, you see that you've got the righteous and then you have all those folks outside who are evildoers. Okay, and then this idea of mutilators of the flesh, this was what the Jews called the pagan religious priests who would hack their bodies as part of their worship, who would cut themselves and bleed to try to get the God's attention. 
And so what Paul is doing is it's almost like he's taking the top three insults that the Jewish folks of his day used against the Gentiles, and he's saying, you know what? What you are doing in trying to force people to obey all the laws of the Old Testament, you have become just like the pagan Gentiles. That's what Paul's saying. The Jews thought they were better than everyone else. And this group of people who were trying to teach the church that you had to obey the Old Testament, they, they thought they were better than everyone else. You know, they had created sort of this, this group. It wasn't just believing in Jesus, but you also had to be circumcised. They felt like, hey, we've been the elect people of God for 2,000 years, and if you don't apply the mark, if you don't follow the laws, then you should have no confidence that God, that, that, that God is happy with you. There's no happiness with God until you do these things. Now, the point of this, you know, which brings us sort of the point of both religion and irreligion, is that they tend to be the same in their approach with God. It's all about performance. Right? It's all about what you've done, and if you haven't done enough, you can't be happy with God. Okay, that's the bottom line. That is the message of the world. It's all about what you do. And so... For us, Paul is also warning us, each one of you, you need to watch out for people who will muddy your relationship with God. Okay, you need to watch out because there are people who will confuse you about how to approach God. And there are people who will try to push you back into the mold that says that in order to approach God, you have to do enough. Watch out for those folks. It's subtle. It's subtle, right? Because people can say things. Usually it comes about, wait a second. Are you trying to tell me that you think you're right with God completely apart from anything you do? Are you serious? I mean, that's ridiculous. If that were really true, then you could do whatever you wanted. You know, there's no limits to your immorality. If, if, if your approach to God means, you know, is, is apart from what you do, if it's not based on you doing enough good, then what's to restrain you? Now, it's interesting, the folks that do this, these dogs, these evildoers, these mutilators of the flesh, their motivation, ultimately with these folks, it's to justify themselves. Okay, and this is part of why you need to watch for them. Um, They're not just trying to help you know God. Okay, these are a group of people who feel like they have found the way and need you to participate in their way because if you find happiness with God outside of their way, that invalidates them. Okay? And so they need you to follow them or they're wrong. Okay? And so what Paul is saying here is they're not concerned for you. They're concerned for themselves. Okay? Now, what's interesting is that Paul's critique it exposes the heart behind it. You know, because if anybody can critique this approach, it's Paul. Okay? It's interesting. Usually the people who speak against privileges, who speak against status and performance, are the people who have none. Right? It's usually the folks who don't have that want to say, oh, it doesn't matter what you have. Right? But Paul is the opposite. Paul is like the uber example of what they are pushing for. And so Paul puts his own experience forth and says, I'm not just telling you this, but I've lived it. Okay, I have walked down the road they're trying to get you to walk down. 
and let me tell you about my experience with it. And that's what he does in verses 4 through 6. Paul says, if you want to play the game of doing enough to be happy with God, I'm in front. And he lists seven things that show his credentials. The first three things relate to his status as a member of this select group of people, the Jews. And the last three show his achievements. Okay, and you can kind of, we can go through the details. We're going to do that right now. But you can kind of walk through and see how Paul takes both his status and his achievements and puts them up and says, look, if anybody would qualify based on their terms, the dogs, the evildoers, the mutilators, then it would be me. But then Paul gives his assessment in verse 7. In verse 7, after he lists these seven things, seven is the number of perfection. This isn't a random sampling. Paul intentionally lists seven things to highlight that it's the whole thing they're pushing. This whole thing. And Paul says in verse 7, all of this, all of this, whatever things, whatever gain I had, this approach to God is loss. This approach to God is loss. That approach that says you have to do these things on that road, in that approach, there is no happiness. There is no hope because ultimately there is no assurance. Paul says there is nothing on that road. There's nothing on that road. In verse 8, he goes even farther. And there are commentators who sort of kind of battle over this. People think that Paul actually uses a cuss word in verse 8 to describe this set of his resume. It's like he pipes out his resume and then he says, you know what? It is all rubbish. Rubbish is such a clean word. I remember it was, it was great in seminary. My Hebrew professor used to say, well, we look at this Hebrew word. This is what it says, but this is the Bible. So you can't say that. So what the English translators did was they prettied it up and made it look like this. This word rubbish, it's hard. I mean, you know, this doesn't happen very often in the Bible. This isn't designed to get you to like not trust the Bible that you have. Your, your Bible is trustworthy. But in the Greek, this word means dung would be a closer appropriation. Um, excrement. Uh, this is the refuse that leaves our bodies. The solid waste that comes from us. <laughs> That's what Paul is saying here. Okay, the Bible is very earthy. It has no problem describing things like this. There's some great examples in the Old Testament we're talking about now. Um, but Paul takes his whole resume and he says, it's loss. It is filth. It is waste. It's excrement. That's what it is. And what Paul is saying here is that it is absolutely, it's worthless. And it's even worse because what Paul says, it's not that these things keep him at zero. Okay. Because that's kind of what, what, what sometimes you think of when you think about loss. It's like, well, you tried, but actually it's, not, it's worthless, so you're back at zero, and you're starting over. What Paul is saying here isn't that you're at zero, but that you're now ne- he's negative. This list of seven things actually puts him in the negative. The word loss can mean damage. It can mean disadvantage. Now, what's the significance of that? Well, it's because... If you pursue these things, if you try to approach God based on your performance, based on the things that you do, you're not actually staying at ground zero. You're working backwards. It's like when you are lost, right? You have two choices, guys. You have, you actually, guys only have one choice. So, ladies, um, when you're lost, you have two choices. 
you can, guys can't do this, you can ask for directions, right? <laughs> or you can try to figure it out on your own. That's the only answer the guys have, actually. It's, oh, no, no, we, we get that. We'll, we'll figure it out. Well, if you don't know where you're going, sometimes you actually aren't getting any closer, right? You're not staying in the same place. You can get, you're, you're getting more and more lost, right? There was an I Love Lucy um, episode where uh, Ricky comes home and he sees Lucy on her hands and knees in the living room, you know, scouring the floor. Going, you know, and he says, Lucy, did you lose something? She said, yeah, I lost my wedding ring. And he said, well, so did you lose it out here? She said, no, I lost it in the bedroom, but the light out here is better. <laughs> Paul's saying that when you try to approach God based on your performance, you're not in the right room. Like you're not anywhere close. And the longer you do it, the worse off you are. Because you teach yourself that the way to approach God is based on your performance. And the more you live in that way, the more it becomes part of who you are. It gets ingrained in who you are. And then you really think that there is no hope outside of your performance. There is no other way. And so this, this, this causes damage to your relationship with God. You get farther and farther and farther away. And I just got to ask, how many of you are, are in this place? How many of you are walking down or trying to walk up, trying to approach God based on your performance? How many of you are just convinced that if you do enough, God will finally say, okay, I'm pleased? Paul, if anybody had credentials to be able to get to God based on his performance, it would have been Paul. And Paul is saying, look, let me tell you, let me tell you the truth. Please don't follow me down this road. This road is loss. This road is excrement. This road is dung. And it's not just Paul, but, I mean, you can, you can see everybody kind of says this. I remember a quote Bill McCurin gave to us a couple months ago. I think it was even part of earlier in Philippians. We talked about Tom Brady, who won three Super Bowls by the age of 28, was at the, the, the peak of his, of his career, and it was really just an issue of how many of the records he was going to set. And he was in this interview, and, uh, and they asked him, well, so how does it feel? And Tom Brady said this in the interview. He said, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. And then the interviewers followed up and said, well, Tom, what's the answer then? And Tom said, I wish I knew. And so even, I mean, any kind of achievement, if it's career status, if it's relationship achievement, if it's anything that you think will make you finally happy, Paul is saying no. You need to take in your mind whatever it is that you feel like is going to make you happy, whatever performances you have, whatever status you have. And in your mind, you need to write rubbish across it. You need to write rubbish across it. This is how Paul assesses his approach, his former approach. This reminds me of digging at the beach. You know, we like to do that. We go, we got big shovels. So we like to dig stuff at the beach. We dig castles. We dig trenches. We dig waterways, islands, forts, you know, everything, right? You go to the beach. Well, there's six of us, right? So we can do a lot of work. And so, well, and yeah. So, so there we are at the beach. And the problem is that when you miss time everything, if the tide's coming in when you start to dig, what happens? This relentless onslaught of waves. They're constantly coming. They're like judgment, right? The waves are like judgment. That's how I see it. Here I am building my empire, right? And the waves come and just wash it all away. That's what Paul's saying here. It's loss. 
and, and it's it's almost worse too because sometimes like this week I was thinking about this that even if we're what we're doing is good okay even if the things that I'm building these things right and they look good they're they're exciting you know we're getting people walking by and they're looking they're looking at us and we, with approval in their eyes we're building great things in the sand but the waves still come and so even if it's not the waves of judgment if you are on the performance approach the thing you can't ever escape is that it's never enough. The stuff we built a couple days ago at the beach is gone. When we show up at the beach next time, everything that we made before is gone. It's almost like the waves are saying, it's almost like the waves in this approach, in this performance approach to God, it's like the waves are saying, what have you done for me today? And that's the pit that we get into. If you are approaching God based on your performance, either you're not doing enough, right, and you're falling short, or if, even if you're doing the right things, the bucket of God's requirements never gets filled. It never gets filled. And I guess it's interesting, too, for me, as I look at this passage, this isn't just for non-Christians. Paul is addressing the church here, right? And it's funny, he's, he's intentionally repeating himself. Verse 1, to write the same things for you, it's no trouble to me. It's safe for you. Hey, what does that tell us? It tells us that we need to keep hearing this message over and over and over again about how we approach God, right? Because even if you're a Christian, there are times when you might say, yeah, I know the right approach to God, but then you slip into the performance mode. Right, And you start to think, well, I know God saved me before, but now I've got to do enough in some way to make him happy or to keep him happy. And so we need to keep hearing this. We need to keep hearing this. And so what are we left with? If the performance approach isn't the right approach, well, now we come to point two. Point two is changing your approach. And this is really begins with sort of verse 7, but it runs through verse 9. Paul says in this whole reevaluation of his life, all of his accolades, all of his things that he was looking to promote himself have been hindrances to his relationship with God. It's like he took the whole credit side, you know, on the ledger sheet, all these things, and he took them out and he put them on the debit side. He's now in debt. He's in debt. Now, you can't do this. You can't reevaluate. You can't change your approach to God if you don't know that there is another approach to God, right? I mean, Paul didn't change his approach until he learned that there was another way. Until he learned. Until news came to him that there was another way to approach God. And this is why, this is why we talk about the gospel. Because the gospel is good news. It's news. There is another way. There is another option. But it's not just another option. It's an option that when you see it, you can't even remember that there was a first option kind of thing. Look at verse, um, um, look at verse, I guess it's verse 8, right? He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Verse 7, he says, I counted all these things as loss for the sake of Christ. 
And so Paul is saying that the other way to approach God, you got the performance way, the other way that is distinct in Christianity that no other, that no one, like, you don't hear this news anywhere else. But there is another way to approach God, and that is by knowing Jesus. By knowing Jesus. When you know Jesus, when you understand the surpassing worth of knowing him, you end up, verse 9, with a righteousness, not of your own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Righteousness, it's, it's, a, it's a technical term. It means, it means a lot, but we're going to say that it means having a secure relationship with God. If you have righteousness, then you can be happy with God. That's what Paul's aiming at. Now, what is it about knowing Jesus that gives you this righteousness? Well, Paul has just said that in chapter 2. He's talked about what Jesus has done, right? In his death, Jesus has taken away the negative in your account, right? He died for your sins. And so all of the negative things, all of the rubbish in your life and Paul's life and my life, Jesus takes away on the cross. He suffers the punishment for that. And then... All that we need, all the good works, all the performance that we need to do in order to make God happy with us, he does in his perfect life. Jesus lives perfectly for us, for us. And then in his resurrection, Jesus pours those blessings out. He pours the blessings of his resurrection out on us. You know, Jesus was truly righteous. You know, Paul said, that uh, he was blameless according to the law um, in verse, uh, verse 6. Well, Jesus was truly blameless. Paul had this sort of shell of blamelessness that was really a farce. Jesus was blameless all the way down, deep into his heart. He was completely and totally perfect. And his status, he was God, right? So you want to talk about status and accomplishment or status and performance, Jesus had it all, right? Not the shell that Paul had, but he had the real thing, but he didn't regard his status as something to use for his own advantage. He used his status. He used his performance to serve us. He opened up a new way to approach God. So much so that when Paul saw it, when Paul saw the risen Jesus and realized that everything that he had thought about Jesus was wrong, when he saw Jesus raised from the dead, it was like he said, when I realized, like I'd been living my whole life trying to please God with my performance. I've been trying to do everything I possibly could to make God happy. And then I saw Jesus raised from the dead. And I realized that all my stuff was worthless. Like I'd been racking up this, these points, these performance points with God. And here I am sort of amassing these things, carrying them around with me. And then I saw Jesus and I wanted to hide him. Because compared to him, compared to what he's done, I've done nothing. I've done nothing. In his life, his death, his resurrection, Jesus filled that bottomless bucket of God's requirements. It's his perfection that fills up that bucket. And then he takes on our own punishment for the stuff that we do when we fail. I mean, this is amazing. This is amazing. 
it's interesting too. This is just another thought about the old approach. It's it's not only frustrating because you never feel like you do enough, but when you're living your life based on your own performance, when you're trying to approach God based on how well you do and if you've done enough, not only is this is it a, a mountain that's really really impossible to climb, but when things go bad, you're all by yourself. You're all by yourself. Because where are you going to go? You can't go to the one that you're trying to please. You know, and, and I've experienced this in my own life. This is how I became a Christian. Like, I'd believed in God my whole life, but I'd never really had a relationship with him. You know, and as my, whenever I needed to get out of a jam, I would pray, you know, in hopes that he would somehow, uh, I mean, I, I thought God really was pleased with me um, because I thought I was just, well, I just had major self-confidence um, I was very confident in myself and thought God was pretty excited about me. Well, then my life fell apart. A series of things happened where I realized that I couldn't do this on my own. And at that point, I realized that I was alone. There was nobody there with me. Like, I had nothing. There was nothing I could turn to. Paul talks about having confidence in the flesh. Well, up to that point in my life, I think I had confidence in my flesh, in my performance, in my works. But I remember the night that it happened, I just realized that I had nowhere else to turn, that I was alone. And that was the night I prayed. I said, God, I can't do this on my own. I I really, I need your help. I need you to come into my life because without you, I can't do this. And, And what's amazing is that God showed up. God showed up. The, the, the lights didn't flicker. The curtains didn't shake. I mean, it wasn't anything, you know, in terms of like this, you know, physical manifestation. But God drew near and comforted my heart. He, he, he gave me peace and happiness. And I can remember thinking about the fact that nothing in my life had changed. But at least now I was in a right relationship with God. And that made me happy that planted a seed of happiness in my heart that grows and grows and grows. Um, and so Paul talks about this two ways of getting righteous, uh, righteousness, one by the law, one through faith in Christ, and it really comes down to trust. And so if you're here today and you're ready for this, the Bible says that if you want this kind of happiness, this kind of happiness that comes through Jesus, this other approach to God that comes through Jesus, you need to believe in him. Okay, that means you need to believe that he came, suffered for you, died for your sins, and then he rose from the dead. And you need to trust him. You need to trust that he's good. You need to trust that he cares about you, that he loves you. That begins a relationship. That begins a relationship with God. And so if you're ready to do that, you can pray. You can say, God, I'm ready for this. I am tired of trying to do enough to make you happy so that I can be happy. If Jesus has done it all for me, then I'm going to take his work. And I'm going to believe that you will accept me because of what he's done. If you pray that, you will know peace and you will know happiness with God. Now, this is also something that's ongoing. It's not just a one-time thing. 
Okay, that happened for me, I think, 16, 17 years ago. But it's still something that I need to keep reminding myself of, right? And even in our, in our text, verse, verse 7 says, I have, or I count it as loss, past tense. Verse 8 is present tense. Indeed, I count everything as loss, right? So if you're a Christian, you need to keep remembering this, that your performance doesn't earn your relationship with God. The good works that you do flow from your relationship with God, right? Remember we talked about that last week. The idea here is that you have a relationship that's where, where it's not that you've done enough, but Christ has done enough for you. And God's saying, I will accept you in him, in him. And so this then leads us to our third point. Our third point, and that's the happiness of the gospel of the right approach. The happiness of the right approach. This is verses 10 and 11. And this is where the good news becomes even greater because this doesn't give you happiness only on the day that you commit to Jesus. It creates this ongoing relationship that you live in and it enables you to walk in happiness with God. Okay, Paul says that life, verse 10, it's all about knowing him. It's about knowing Christ. This reminds us of chapter one, right, where Paul said to live is Christ. So Paul he says that to, to, to know him, he goes farther in verse 10. He says to know him is to know the power of his resurrection. To know what it's like to experience the power that raised Jesus from the dead. That same power, Paul says, you can experience. And you do experience when you know him. Okay, and so the question then becomes, how do you know this power? Right? Where do you get this power? How does it come to you? And the answer is the more that you know Jesus the more of his power you will experience. Okay? The more you know Jesus, the more of his power you'll experience. And so you want to ask yourself, what is your gospel journey? What has your journey into the gospel been like? What is your, what has your journey been? Like I remember uh, a time, it was the summer of, it was right before the summer of 1994. Okay, so this is 15 years ago. Ooh, pretty close to 15 years exactly. I was at UCLA. I was walking back to my apartment with one of my roommates. And I remember him telling me that he was excited because our college pastor was going to be preaching a summer series on the gospel. Now, what I thought in my mind was, oh, man. I thought the gospel? Like, really? Come on. Like, there's more important stuff than that. Like, really, we're going to spend every week and he's just going to preach the gospel to us? Like, how is that exciting? <laughs> I mean, I, was like, I, knew, I knew Jesus died for my sins. Is he really going to say that every week for the next, you know, 15, 16 weeks? Really? And I'm thinking this, processing it, but trying not to seem unspiritual because if I react that way to him, then he's going to think I'm somewhat less than spiritual or whatever because clearly he's re- excited about it, so I'm missing out on something. And then it happened. Something happened to me. In my mind, I remember, because I respected this guy. I, I had a great respect for his walk with God, for his spirituality. And so it just, it hit me. What if there's more to the gospel than I thought? Like, I had that thought. What if there's more to the gospel than I thought? And at that moment, I committed myself. Okay, I didn't know that the gospel was bigger than what I thought. But I said, you know what, I'm just going to believe that it is bigger and try to find out why. Or try to find out how. 
And so at that moment, I committed myself to the fact that the gospel must be bigger because a lot of people talk about it and I don't really get it. It seems like forgiveness of sins is something that you hear, you receive, you accept, and then you kind of move on to growing in grace and discipleship and maturity and all these other things, right? And so I committed myself at that moment to believe that the gospel was bigger and then to find out how. How is it bigger? Well, (laughs) that was 15 years ago. Um... What's amazing is that when you commit to something like that, God begins to show you. And that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. Over the next probably year and a half, I began to understand the significance of Jesus' work for me. Okay? I had gotten that Jesus died for my sins. I understood that he rose from the dead, but that was really just sort of a, you know sort of an afterthought because you can't keep him dead because he didn't sin. So you got to raise him up. But the death is really important, right? And so I went from that to recognizing that the totality of Jesus's life and his death and his resurrection were for me. You know, even what we've talked about here, this righteousness that comes to us, it's based on his perfect life. And I remember coming to grips with this shortly after that commitment where I realized, oh my goodness, He lived a perfect life, and God looks at me as though I've lived a perfect life. That was big. I'd never heard that before. I'd never understood that before. Maybe I had heard it and just didn't get it. But then I realized his resurrection meant that he had received all the blessings of salvation, and he was going to share those with me. He did that for me. And so this idea of the work of Jesus for me became bigger and bigger and bigger. And I thought, wow, well, this is amazing. And I remember I would tell everybody, you know, and, I, and then I created this whole, well, see, now, do you really understand the gospel? I'd say that to people. Because I don't know if you do, because I didn't, you know, and then I found out about this. Do you know about this? You know that Jesus' perfect life is credited to your account? You know what that means? You know, that, that God is, God looks at you as though you've already lived a perfect life. And you've got all these years left. But you're done. You're, you're, you're cashed in. You're, you're, you're set. You have righteousness covering over you i would tell people that and they'd, some people would get excited some people look at me like i was stupid and i thought oh this is how i must have looked at other people when they told me this before when i didn't understand this either and so this whole idea of the work of jesus for me well and then it even got bigger because then a couple years later i got a hold of this book called the gospel mystery of sanctification by walter marshall this is the greatest book i've ever read period sorry um that's it well except for the bible um because this explains And I began to understand that Jesus' work wasn't just for me. But Jesus also works in me. That it's not just that he wraps us with the robes of righteousness and clothes us with his perfect record, although he does that. But it's like he also opens up that robe, reaches inside, and changes who we are. Did you know that? I mean, this is what Paul says. He says, and and it's all based on the gospel. Paul says that when Jesus died, he died to sin. And so if you are in him, if you believe in him, then you died to sin. That means you're dead to sin. That means the sinful heart that you had, the inclinations, the propensities, the desires to sin, those have been killed. Those are dead. God has put in you a new heart. He's put in you a heart that loves him a heart that loves to do what's right, a heart that, that, that loves people. And this is all the work of Christ in you. Paul says in Romans 6, he also raised from the dead to give new life to your mortal body. 
Ezekiel 36 says he took out the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. He pours out the Holy Spirit on us so that we become different people. And that's different from what he does for us. It's what he does in us. And my mind just went, oh my goodness. There are whole other rooms to the gospel that I didn't even know were here. It was like they wallpapered over the door, built stuff I didn't know was there. And yet God was opening my eyes to see this stuff. And I began to understand and the gospel got bigger and bigger and bigger. Well then, I mean, it doesn't stop. Five years ago, I began to understand that Jesus wants to fill the world with God's image and God's glory. That Jesus isn't just about saving individual people from their sins, although he is. He's not just about saving a church. He wants to fill the world with images of him. He wants to show the world what life could be like if everything that was broken was fixed. He wants to love people who aren't being loved. He wants to show mercy to people who aren't, being, who aren't receiving mercy. He wants to bring justice where there is no justice. And here's the kicker. He wants to do it through you. Through you. His work in the world. You are his body. And so he works in the gospel for you. He works in the gospel in you. And then he works in the gospel through you. And again, my mind just went, I felt like, it's like I keep having these experiences going, man, I'm not even getting close to getting this whole thing. And so for 15 years, I have been committed to the fact that the gospel has to be bigger than I thought. And so far, I'm not even close to the edge of the map. Paul is saying that the more you know Christ, the more you experience his power. Do you know Christ? Is your understanding of Christ and his work limited? Is it truncated? the more you know Christ, the more you experience his power. When you know the work of Christ for you, boy, you experience assurance and peace and happiness because you have a relationship with God. When you, when you know Christ's work in you, you experience real growth, real maturity. You experience real love, real care. You change from the inside out. When you know the work of Christ through you, you become an ambassador for him. You become a representative of him. You become an agent of his grace. And every time you do that, you are experiencing the power of Christ in you, through you, for you. I mean, that's what Paul is aiming at. Charles Spurgeon, this great preacher from the 1800s, he had this great way with words. He said, every gift, every blessing that comes from God is wrapped up in, it's like a present. God gives it to you, has a tag on it. And the tag says, more to come. More to come. And I feel even 15 years after, as I've been on this journey for myself, 15 years later, I feel like I'm still getting to experience that more to come. There is more and more and more to come. It's amazing to me. The gospel, you know, joy to the world, right? We sing it at Christmas time. He's come to make his blessings known far as the curse is found. 
wherever life is broken, this is, you know, we experience the blessings of Christ. We experience the blessings of Christ. One other favorite hymns of mine is, Like a river glorious is God's perfect peace, over all victorious in its bright increase. Perfect, yet it flows fuller every day. Perfect, and yet it flows deeper all the way. That's the gospel. The more you commit to it, the more you commit to knowing Christ in the gospel, the greater experience of his power you will have. You will understand it. And it's a power that overcomes suffering, which Paul talks about in verse 11. But it also, the other thing does, it, 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 it totally reverses all of the religious activities that we talk about here at Harbor. Okay? Because when you, when, sometimes when you think about knowing Christ, what am I talking about? Well, you got to read your Bible. You need to pray. You need to serve. You need to be in community. You need to be, and it's like, wait a second. I thought we were done with that approach to God, right? I mean, wait, didn't it just sound like I threw that all back on and now you got this weight that you have to carry? And Well, when it's about knowing Christ, it changes everything. It changes everything because reading the Bible, reading this, look, let me just say, you just need to know Christ better, okay? So read this to know him better, okay? I mean, that's, that's it. Don't read it because you have to. Read it to know Christ better. When you pray, don't pray because you have to. Pray so that you can talk with Jesus. You know, when you serve, don't serve because you have to. Serve because when you serve, Jesus is actually working through you. And you're understanding what it's like to be Jesus who served to the point of death. You know, be in community, not because you have to, but because being in community allows you to see Christ in other people. You know, all of the disciplines of the Christian life get, get radically and wonderfully gospelized when you see it as a way to know Christ better. I mean, that's what Paul is aiming at. I said this a couple months ago. It's not that doing the right things fills up your glass of God's blessings so that you can drink it. Okay? Rather, what the gospel says is that doing the right things is drinking from the glass that Christ has already filled for you. Okay, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about drinking from Christ. We're talking about drinking from the blessings. He was emptied in his death so that our cup could stay overflowingly full. And he just invites us to spend the rest of our lives knowing him better. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. (laughs) Jesus, we thank you for for this amazing, radical transformation, we confess that we try to approach you by our works and our performance. We just forget this. Thank you that there is surpassing value in knowing you. Thank you that knowing you changes everything about us. Help us to walk in this approach, to walk in this gospel approach that's based on your work and your performance, not our own. And Father, if there are any here who haven't yet committed to you, please draw them to yourself. Help them see that this is the way of real happiness, real joy, a joy that brings happiness to all of life. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.